This morning, I invite you to follow along with me as I read in just a few moments Luke's account of the first Easter evening. You'll find it in uh, Luke chapter 24 uh, in your Bibles, or uh, you can follow along with me in your bulletins this morning. Uh, We come this morning to Sermon 7 of nine in uh, this series that we've been working on, Flesh and Bones, a Biblical Theology of the Body. Uh, the first three of the sermons uh, were sermons that we ref- where we reflected on the creation of our bodies and the intent that God had in creating us as embodied creatures. What would he like us to do with these bodies? And we saw that that was very good, and it was good to be in those, and it was good to reflect on those from Scripture. Uh, The next two sermons were, admittedly, as we realized, more difficult than the first two, because in those sermons we had to deal with the fact that we don't live uh, in the Garden of Eden, and that our bodies have been impacted directly by the fall into sin. And as a result of that fall into sin, ultimately we die. The scriptures say, dust unto dust, to dust we shall return. But in addition to the impact of the fall into sin on our bodies, we realize that in eating of it, in partaking of it, we have become it as well. And so sin not only impacts on us, but it is in us, and it operates through us as well. So those were two difficult sermons as we consider that. And now, last week, we have come to the redemption of our bodies and how that reality, that redemption, our redemption, the redemption of our bodies is actually found not in our bodies, but in the first place, in the body of Jesus Christ. And so what we did last week is we looked at his body in birth his body in life, and his body in death. We're continuing that exact pattern uh, today, and uh, I'll launch us with reading Luke 24 for us, the last verses of that, beginning at verse 36. This is the living word of the living God. Hear it as such. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, And said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they disbelieved, they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then, and this is sometime later, he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Touch me and see. Great God in heaven, that such an invitation should be extended to those who were there on that evening and us through them to hear of these things is grace upon grace. It is our very life. And so we pray that today, through the eyes of faith, you would allow us to see Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for this word, for this testimony, written and preserved for us by the power of your spirit. We pray in your name today. Amen. How do our bodies get delivered from death? Is there a deliverance of our bodies? How are our bodies redeemed? Or we can simply ask the question, are our bodies redeemed? Will you see your loved ones again in flesh who were in Christ, who were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? When you get to heaven, will you recognize them? Will, will they have bodies that look like this body? Will, will you have a body that allows you to be able to see them? This is kind of the question we've been working towards in this series. What do we do about the fact that while God created us from dust, and he created us with glory and honor for a life of glory and honor. We've fallen into shame and have been justly condemned to return from the dust from which we were taken. And the question becomes, what happens with that? Is there anything then left for these bodies in the eternal future? Now, when we are speaking of these questions today, we're asking more than simply questions about God's provision for us in this life, uh, in our past of our lives, in the present of our lives with our daily bread, uh, and in the future, we see God's provision for us, his physical provision for us. If we wanted to, we could have taken time and considered the provision of God. We could have used the same categories we've used before and seen how God provides place for us, how he provides clothing for us, how he provides food for us and fellowship for us, and all of the number of other things that God provides for us physically. We could have considered those things, but when we're talking about the redemption of our bodies, we're not merely talking about that. We're not merely talking about, will God take care of our bodies for the rest of this life? Will our retirement be enough? Will we have enough food? Will we have enough shelter for the future? Those are good questions, and God provides for those things, uh, and it is sweet to see and consider that providential care of God in Scripture. But we're asking something different. 
we're asking the question, along with Paul, who can deliver us from this body of death? Is there some way out of the body of death itself? And so we're talking here about uh, truths that are eternal truths, questions that are eternal questions, final questions, and ultimate questions here. Not, not merely this life, but for that which is to come. And our thesis is this. The message of the Bible is that the way, the life, and the redemption of your body is dependent on someone else's body, namely the body of Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked a couple of times, and I've said it offhand that many of us in this room are involved in the healthcare industry in one way or another. You don't need me, a pastor, a preacher, to tell you to take good care of your body. Your doctor can tell you that. Everybody else can tell you to take good care of your body and your health and things like that. That's a good thing, right? That is a good thing that we are talking about. But here we are recognizing in this that ultimately our bodies can't deliver our bodies from the body of death. And so it is to the body of Jesus Christ that we turn. And as we turn and as we begin today uh, with looking at Scripture, I want to consider uh, something from the book of Job. Now, if you know anything about the story of Job, you know that Job had a body that was racked with pain and with suffering. His life had become an entire life of anguish and pain and sorrow as it moved into the phase that we see here in the book of Job. In Job chapter 19, he cries out in the midst of this suffering saying, God has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. God, I'm just going to repeat that, has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. Now that should sound familiar to us, particularly in light of where we've been in, uh, in this sermon series. That's Psalm 8 language. Okay, we, We've already noted before the parallels between Job and Psalm 8, because along with the psalmist in Psalm 8, Job is one of those places where we see that question, what is man? What is man that you're mindful of him? Or what is the son of man? And now Job, in his desperation, cries out with this kind of thing, where did it go? The glory and honor with which you created me, that's been stripped from me. This crown that you have given, that, that you've set upon my head, that has been taken away. So there's desperation there. There's obviously sadness and, and, and dismay, in one sense, from Job at the loss of this. But in the midst, same chapter, chapter 19, we get another note that kind of cries out from the depths of the pit, if we want to use psalm-type language here. From the, from the depths of Sheol, another voice cries out, and you'll recognize this. Uh, this is Job speaking, but you'll recognize it if you know the Messiah. Job 19, verse 25, says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives... And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And listen to this sequencing and listen to it carefully. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, 
My heart faints within me. This is an ultimate claim that Job is making here. It's not only a proximate claim. It's not Job merely saying to his friends that things will get better, that I'll get better, that I'll get healed from this life, that things will turn out better for me here in this life. Now, providentially, they do, right? They do in that life. But that's not what Job's talking about here. Job's eyes are beyond the present horizon. Job is looking at a time when his body, his skin, his flesh have been destroyed. And then he recognizes a deliverance that is to come, if you will, a re-enfleshing. A re-enfleshing, yet after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. It will all get destroyed, but in my flesh I will see God. And for Job, that hope is inseparably linked with this Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer liveth. With the living Redeemer, it's the living Redeemer that provides the link, provides the opportunity for Job, having suffered in the flesh, lost all of his flesh to all of the diseases that he had, to say, nope, in my flesh. I will see him because of this living Redeemer. And so this morning then we turn once again to Job's living Redeemer, and I want to continue the structure for us that we had from last week. So we, I already rehearsed last week. This week, his body in resurrection, his body in ascension, and his body in heaven, or his body in session, seated at the right hand of God. His body was offered. We saw that last week. His body was abused. It was whipped. It was beaten. It was spat upon. It was stripped. And it was crowned with thorns and with royal finery in a mockery of the Son of Man. A mockery. You're crowned with glory and honor? Okay. Let's see that. How's this crown of thorns? How's this dress? It's put on him. He's mocked again. He's stripped again. And his body is put on the tree. He was crucified. Nails pierced his hands and his feet. The spear was finally driven into his side. And then his body, in all of its deadness, in all of its limpness, was taken down from the cross and it was buried into the ground. His body was a sacrifice of blood and of flesh and of bones, and they knew it. They knew that that had taken place. They had fled, but surely they had heard the reports and they knew what was coming. They saw bits and pieces of it. And now, that evening, he's standing in their midst. All of that took place now they're in a room, and now Jesus is there with them, embodied, embodied, flesh and bones, just like them. Not a spirit, not a vision, not a dream. Jesus says to them, touch me and see. There are phrases that I hope over the years will get into your head because they've been repeated so many times in 
this sermon series, Flesh and Bones, is, of course, one of them. Touch me and see is one of them as well. Jesus says to them, it is I, myself, or we could reverse the wording as it is in the Greek, myself, I am. Myself, I am before you. I'm not someone else. I'm not a spirit, but myself, I am. Touch and see. Now, see, they certainly did. Do you think they touched him? Would you have touched him? Would you have gone up and put your hand on him? Uh, Mary did, right? Mary did. Mary, Mary clung to him, clung to his feet. I'd have touched him. I bet they touched him. I bet they went right up and hugged or, or touched just to go, wait, what is happening here in front of us? And discovered his body, his flesh and bones, himself in the resurrection. He had succumbed to death. He took death upon himself. Upon himself, what Jesus took on the cross was this body of death, and we're using that language from the end of Romans 7, this body of death. He takes this body of death upon himself on the cross. He takes upon himself on the cross our sinful flesh, the sin that dwells in our members. I, I hesitated to read when we were back in this passage from Romans 8 uh, verse 3 because it could easily be, be misunderstood, but at this point, we need to read it and hear what it says. It says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. When the Son of God is on the cross, he has taken upon himself our sinful flesh in his body. But death could not hold him. Psalm 49 describes death as a shepherd. The shepherd of death wants to take the sheep of his own and grab them for himself. The shepherd, death, thought that he had sealed the fate of humanity and of the Christ when they sealed the tomb. But God, Acts chapter 2, that John read for us earlier, but God loosed the pangs of death, loosed the grip of death, the cords of death by, and I want to insert a phrase here from the writer of Hebrews, by what we can call the power of an indestructible life. The body was dead, but over Jesus Christ there is the power of an indestructible life. And the pangs of death are loose. There is no decay, there is no corruption of his flesh, which is what Peter is emphasizing in that sermon that we looked at. In death, here's what happened. Jesus entered into the strong man's house. Okay, this, is, this is Jesus' own word, his own illustration. He enters into the strong man's house. He, by his death, by his infleshing, disarms the strong man of his power, binds up the strong man, binds up the one who had the power of death, and then he plunders his house with himself 
as the first fruit of that very plundering of the house of Satan, of the house of death. Turn with me either in your Bibles, in your bulletins to page 8, if you would, uh, in your Bibles if you'd like to, to 1 Corinthians 15. This is one of the richest passages in Scripture on uh, the resurrection of our Lord. We'll come back to it in two weeks. But I just want to read a section for us, and not even the full section that I have printed there on page 8. But listen to these reflections, because the Corinthians were having trouble with the whole idea of the resurrection. Maybe, perhaps, Christ was resurrected, but surely not our bodies. Surely we're not resurrected, and Paul is correcting that. And he comes to this point, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Two things for a moment just to point out from this. In the first place, this idea of the first fruits. When Jesus comes out of the grave and he's standing there in front of the disciples, he is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. The first one that has come out to say, I have defeated death and sin and Satan himself. He is the first fruit. But the implication of being the first fruit is he's not the last fruit, right? The first fruit means there's more fruit coming from this, and that's the ordering that we see here in the passage that I just read for us. The second thing that I want to point out to us is something that can just cause us to think for a moment, and that is in verse 21. As by a man death came into the world, that's obviously Adam, as it's clarified in the next verse, Also, by a man, has come the resurrection of the dead. By a man, we died. By a man, we are raised up. The significance of the link in the humanity of Jesus Christ with humans, with Adam. Death has been dealt its death blow in the resurrection of Christ. Uh, in Psalm 49 and even 1 Corinthians 15, death is personified, and I'll work along with that. I can imagine death with its ravenous, insatiable appetite, sitting down, ready to feast upon the flesh of Jesus Christ, ready to take the flesh of Jesus Christ in the grave and turn it back into dust, to get rid of it, poised, death, to deflesh the infleshed Son of God, Word of God, and death almost tasting the victory of that moment. Death, ready to stab into Christ, ready to devour the flesh of Jesus Christ, one more man, one final man to return to dust and the job will be done. And at that moment, 
Jesus turns the tables. Literally, turns the tables around. And as we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 2, Let me just read the verse for us. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Death ready to consume. Death ready to devour. Insatiable. And yet Jesus, by death, tastes death for us. And in his victorious resurrection, in the words of Isaiah that are quoted, not on this section, but in a later section then of 1 Corinthians 15, he didn't only taste death, he swallowed it. He swallowed it. He took the one who would devour and swallowed the one who would devour by his own life, an indestructible life. And now because of his resurrected body in their presence, repentance and forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed to all the nations. But that is not the end. Because his body and resurrection, as we trace that narrative there in Luke or as we see it in Acts as it's played out, his body and resurrection becomes then his body ascended. Well, let's reflect for a few moments on the ascension. We reflect a lot on the resurrection of Christ and on the death of Christ, but a few moments now on the ascension of Jesus Christ. The bodily ascension is more than uh, just a way to end the story. how, How do you bring the story to a conclusion? How do we explain that Jesus isn't physically here with us right now? It's it's more than a way to simply wrap things up. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, it's more than uh, simply Jesus just checking out. Or I would say it another way, it's, it's more than Jesus you know, re- being ascended up into heaven and saying, that's all, folks. That's it, that's it. Wait a couple of thousand years, I'll be back. But that's all I've got to do right now. That the ascension took place is a witnessed event. It is a proclaimed event And it is a confessed event by the Church of Jesus Christ for all the ages around the world. He ascended into heaven is part of our confession. He was taken up into heaven. He was taken up into glory. This is the next step in his exaltation. He had descended from heaven, and the next step in his exaltation from the resurrection is his ascension, his return. It is a celebration of his victory over all of the forces of wickedness. It is where they are led captive as he is ascended up and declared to be the victor. He descended as God as the eternal word, as the eternal son of God, to become enfleshed. So he descended as God through the power of the Holy Spirit to be enfleshed and conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary so that as the enfleshed one, he could defeat the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He could go into his house, defeat him, take the keys away from the devil. 
The devil had the keys. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, says, I'll take those. I'll take those. And having accomplished this, he ascends as man. He, has, he, he resurrected as man. He ascends as man, albeit as the God-man, but as man himself. And we dare not miss the significance of this. In Adam, all mankind shared a solidarity. We all had a solidarity with, man, with Adam. It was the solidarity, obviously, the solidarity of flesh, that we are flesh and bones like Adam was flesh and bones and descended ultimately from Adam and from Eve. But it was another solidarity. It was the solidarity of sin, and it was the solidarity of death. Death came into the world through that one man, and all of the men and all of the women afterwards shared the solidarity in this body of death. We shared a solidarity as well in banishment and exile from the presence of God. In the ascension of Jesus Christ, the man, into heaven, a new man, to use the language of Scripture, a new Adam has risen and in that ascension is rising. And, and, and we ask the question, where, where is he rising to? Where is he ascending to? What is the place that he's going to? And the answer is he's going into the very presence of God. And the Heidelberg Catechism that we've already confessed together doesn't miss the significance of this moment. The significance of this moment is that now we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will take us up. We, the members of his body, will take us up to himself in heaven. A man, a man is granted access to, is received into the presence of God. He was a man who accomplished all that God gave him to do. Adam did not do that. Adam was a man who did not obey all of the will of his heavenly Father. Jesus is the man who accomplished all that the Father sent him to do, and so now he receives a name, and he receives a title, and the title that he receives is Son. Son. He was always the eternal Son. Son of God, enfleshed, the one who accomplished all my will, the one who obeyed all of the words of the Father, Son. Come into this place. Come back into fellowship with me. Having accomplished all that needed to be done, he has thus established a new solidarity in himself for all who trust in him. All of us were in Adam. And by faith, we can become in Christ. And in that position ascended into heaven, he advocates for us. Thomas Odom writes this. He notes that in taking his body into heaven, Jesus takes with him the ultimate evidence of our atonement, his body. The fact that his body is in heaven is that which proclaims to the Father, it's been paid. It's been paid. 
I'm here. I'm the evidence that allows for the relationship with man to take place. The Westminster Confession says it this way, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended. Same body, same body in suffering, same body in resurrection, same body in ascension. I, myself, it is I, myself, and heaven, God, now welcomes the perfect image bearer. The perfect image bearer the one who obeyed all things, the return of the king. Adam was set up as king over this creation. He failed in it. Another son is sent. Another man comes and obeys, and heaven welcomes the return of a king, an image bearer. Which brings us to our final point today, which is his body in heaven, or other ways to say it, his body seated at the right hand of the Father, or his body in uh, session, really. To, he is seated at the right hand in session is the way uh, to properly say it. When he sits down, and we've all read that, in addition to reading it, we've all confessed it, right? We confess that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It isn't to rest. It was foretold in Psalm uh, 110, I put it on the front of your bulletins this morning, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It is a place of honor. It is a place from which all rule can extend. And it shows us two things. It shows us, first of all, an end and then a beginning when he sits at the right hand of his Father. When Jesus sits in the first place, it is an act of completion. It is an end. He sits down when he has done the work that he was given to do. It is an act of completion, of accomplishment. It is a statement. It is finished. All of his work as mediator, as redeemer, is accomplished As the writer of Hebrews makes clear, and part of this is on the front of your bulletin, part of it I will read for you now. Old Testament priests never sat down. They could never sit down. And it's important. It it was built into the system that they could never sit down because in never sitting down, it made it clear that what they were doing could never stop. They could never stop offering sacrifices for themselves. They could never stop offering sacrifices for other people, and they had to keep doing it. They no more than finished doing it, then they had to go back in and do it again because that's the way sin was working in this world, and their sacrifices were incomplete. Hebrews 10, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's why the priest is always standing, just to show, got to do it again. It's never done. And then he continues saying this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. When he did his work, he then sat down from that work. The life he lived in obedience was sufficient. The sacrifice of his body was sufficient, and his priesthood is perfect. 
F.F. Bruce says it this way, a seated priest is a guarantee of a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. Jesus, seated on high, is the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. It is the ultimate statement that he has done it. But it's not only an end. It's also a beginning. It's a beginning of the reign. It's the enthronement now of the man, Christ Jesus, to reign over the earth. The God-man, but the man, Christ Jesus. His reign is inaugurated. It had been given to our first parents to exercise dominion, to rule over everything, to subdue everything. And now that reign, that command is granted to the new man who sits in heaven at the right hand of God and who from that position exercises his rule, interceding for us, delivering us from all of our enemies, subduing and suppressing the enemies, quickening the church of Jesus Christ, distributing gifts to the people and the church of Jesus Christ through the power of his spirit. And when? And when that reign is completed, when he has put all enemies under his feet, including the last one, and the last one is death itself, then, at that time, the reigning king, the God-man of heaven and earth, will appear on the earth, and he will raise up our mortal flesh. He will take your body of death, no matter where it has been scattered, no matter whether it was burned or whether it was turned into dust by the work of the time and of worms, he will gather up all the parts of all of us, and the flesh will grow on the bones, and the sinews will come together, and we will be raised. And on that day, we will see God for ourselves with our own eyes, and our bodily redemption will be complete because of the bodily resurrection and ascension and session of Jesus Christ. And in that day, death will be no more because of the body of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us, your people, to hope in you, to see that in your resurrection, in your ascension, in your session and in your return again is our hope for the resurrection of the dead, for the life everlasting. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We groan and we sigh, and we say, come quickly into this world of ours. We pray this in your name. Amen.